So how are you coming on those New Year's resolutions? It's January 5th. It's the busiest month of the year at the Y. It's the slowest month of the year at Krispy Kreme. But pretty soon everything will get back to normal and we'll forget what we even talked about. You know, New Year's resolutions are usually us trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And that's why we fail. I wonder if it might be helpful to tether our resolutions to something bigger than we are. Mark is starting a new series this month on our identity as a church. And he got a text on New Year's Day saying that he was very sick with a bad flu virus and asked if I could fill in. So that's what I'm doing today. And what I want to do is set our mission statement that Eric just reminded us of, as well as our core values and statements that you might have heard around church, such as, this is for that, in the highest possible context we can. I want to anchor them in the biggest context that we can, and then Mark, in the next two Sundays, will come and deal with the specifics of our vision as a church. Larger contexts are usually helpful. I love flying. I never get tired of it. I love to look out the window of an airplane, and when you get high enough at 36,000 feet, you can actually begin to see the curvature of the earth. It's an amazing perspective. And if you go higher, you might even get a view of the earth that would look like this. Just take a, a look at that for a moment and see how your perspective on your problems and where you live changes. Notice how dark outer space is, for one thing. Well, this morning, by going as high as we possibly can, I want to give us a framework for understanding the Bible, for making sense of our lives, and for seeing what this thing called church is all about. And just a word about our approach this morning. Here at College Park, we are committed to expository preaching, which means verse-by-verse verse preaching through large sections of Scripture. We feel that is the healthiest diet for God's people. But once in a while, I think it is helpful to get kind of a step back and to get a perspective, a framework that we can fit all the teachings of the Bible into. And so with that background, let me ask you a question this morning. What would you say is the theme of the Bible? Now, that's a big question. And it may take you back to your English lit class days in college when the professor gave you a book to read, said come back next week and be prepared to discuss the theme of this book. And so you read the book, you write a few notes down, you come and, and then the prof comes and the next day he says, Kevin, would you tell me what the theme of the book is? And so you kind of stammer a few things out and the prof goes like this and says, well, that's in the book, but it's, it's not the theme. It's not the overriding theme of the book. And so you have to go back and dig harder. This is hard work. But fortunately, as it relates to the Bible, we don't have to do it alone. There are people much smarter than I am, much better read than we are, who have already tackled this question. And in 1646, for one example, a group of English and Scottish theologians got together in an effort to see if they could find some more common ground between the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. And they came up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first of the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I see we have a few catechists in the room this morning. As a former Baptist church, that's pretty good. I think they got it right. And to borrow the words of Stephen Hawthorne, 
I think the Bible, in a nutshell, is the story of his glory. Hawthorne goes on to say this. He says, the Bible is basically a story about God. Novel idea. When we turn to the Bible as a self-help book, we end up bored or frustrated with what seem to be a rambling collection of stories. What if the Bible is more about God than it is about us? How thrilling to discover that every element of Scripture converges in one central saga of one worthy person. Perhaps it would be wise to read the entire story from God's point of view. When we do, the grand love story finally makes sense. God is not just loving people to make them feel better about themselves. He is transforming them to become people who can fully love Him. God is drawing people as worshipers to offer freely to Him their love-inspired glory. I think perhaps this morning some of us may need a Copernican revolution. You know, it's always amazing to me to think that for most of history, almost every single person that ever lived was geocentric. They thought that the earth was the center of the universe. And then in the early 16th century, interestingly enough, exactly at the same time as Martin Luther was introducing a similar revolution in theology, a man named Nicolaus Copernicus proved that the sun is actually the center of our galaxy. And so serious-minded people had to make a significant shift in their worldview. And if you simply rearrange the first three letters of geocentric, you will get egocentric, which is how most of us, I think, read our Bibles and live our lives and maybe even have come to church this morning. You've come to get something out of it because life is about you. And if you don't, you'll be unhappy about it and you'll talk about it over lunch. We are egocentric people and we need a revolution. But the great irony, in fact, the mystery of the kingdom is this, that the more theocentric we are, the more God-centered, the more, if you will, son, S-O-N-centered we are, the deeper our joy and the greater our satisfaction will be. See, trying to satisfy our own needs is like drinking from the ocean. It just makes us thirstier. But gazing at God is like a cold, clear bottle of water. John Piper expressed it this way, the deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. And so here's my effort at summing up the Bible, my answer to the question I asked you earlier. The story arc of the Bible is this. It's the story of his glory, which he gets by redeeming a people for himself and punishing his enemies. And you go, why did you have to ruin it by saying punishing his enemies? Well, for one reason, maybe up to 10% of the Bible talks about that. But, but also, you really didn't want the wicked person to get away with it, did you? No, I didn't think so. And they won't. God will set everything right. And that's a sermon for another day. But the Bible is the story of his glory. What we want to do today is to trace the story of his glory in the Bible, and I'm gonna start with some definitions so we know what we're talking about. Then we're gonna parachute down out of 36,000 feet down into the pews where we actually live, and then we're gonna come back and apply this, these principles to our own lives. And I hope this will be a helpful way to start the new year for you. 
to anchor your life into something bigger than yourself. So first of all, what is glory? This is an important question because glory is such a churchy word that most of us probably actually don't even know what it means. Glory in Hebrew literally means heavy. It means something weighty, something with substance. And no, this does not mean that you are more glorious because of the pounds you put on over Christmas. But it means the intrinsic worth of something because of its brilliance or its beauty or its power or its wisdom. Now that's a very philosophical idea. Let's make it more concrete. Consider for a moment the sun. The sun is so mammoth, so brilliant, so powerful that even from 93 million miles away, we cannot look directly at the sun or we would be blinded. The sun is truly glorious, is it not? And then consider the glory of God. The one who simply one day said, let there be a sun, and that thing came into existence. And not only that, but 10 trillion other galaxies besides. How much substance, how much weight does God have? The infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections put on public display. Piper says it's the definition of the glory of God. Secondly, what does it mean to glorify? Well, it simply means to recognize something's glory or something's intrinsic value, their substance, their worth, to, to appreciate it, to verbalize it, to comment on it. So to use just one illustration, if I were to, to just say to, to you, hey, didn't you love the performance of Daniel Craig as a southern gentleman sleuth in Knives Out, which was a masterful performance, by the way, what have I just done? I have glorified Daniel Craig. And whatever athlete or entertainer or musician you like and talk about your friends to, and this is okay, you're glorifying them because you're just talking about what they've done. You're acknowledging their substance and their worth. But then I wonder how glory is made greater. What does more glory mean? I mean, doesn't God already have all the glory he could possibly want? Well, here's what we need to understand. Nothing can change the intrinsic glory of something, but appreciated glory can grow. And let me help you understand what I mean by that. We talked about the sun a moment ago. If the earth were the size of a softball, the sun would be as big as this entire sanctuary. In fact, we can feel the heat from the sun from 93 million miles away. Did you feel any heat from the California wildfires? No, they were just a couple thousand miles away. I mean, the sun is an amazing thing. No wonder ancient man worshipped the sun. But the only reason they worshipped the sun is because they had never heard about U.Y. Scooty. U.Y. Scooty is the largest star that we've yet seen in the universe. U.Y. Scooty is five billion times the size of the sun. If the earth were a softball, the sun was the sanctuary, U.Y. Scooty would be bigger than Mount Everest. If you put it in the middle of our solar system, it would reach all the way out to Saturn. It is 340,000 times brighter than the sun. And now what has just happened? U.Y. Scooty has gotten more glory because you are in awe of it as you should be. 
And UY Scooty is just a grain of sand in God's shoe. It's just a dust bunny under his dining room table. It's just a pebble under his mattress. That is the glory of our God. But it's not grown until it's appreciated. In fact, you want to really appreciate it? Here is a picture of how big UY Scooty is. What's happened? It has not changed, but its glory has grown because now you know about it and you're impressed by it and you'll forget about it by lunchtime. So the story of the Bible is the story of God getting more and more glory as more and more people from more and more ethnicities come to worship Him. And this is an important point that we must understand. It's not just one ethnicity that God wants to praise Him. God wants praise from all the peoples of the world. If you've been around here long, you should know the difference between the word people and peoples. There are 7.7 billion people in the world. There are 17,000 peoples, ethno-linguistic people groups. And God gets more glory the more variety there is in his worshipers. And I think you can understand this. God would get glory if there were 1,000, let's say, Caucasians worshiping him. But it would be a much more glorious scene to have 100 Caucasians, 100 Africans, 100 Arabs, 100 Turks, 100 Indians, 100 Chinese, 100 Malay, 100 Japanese, 100 Eskimos, and 100 Polynesians, all together worshiping him would bring him more glory. Why? Because God loves variety. And to have people from so many areas of the world with such different backgrounds and convictions all agreeing on one thing, that he is worthy of praise, that's, bring, that's what brings him great glory. And that's the story of the Bible. God making his fame known among all the nations of the world so that he would receive more and more glory that is due his name. Some may wonder, well, doesn't this make God a self-obsessed megalomaniac? All he cares about is his own glory. Well, we don't have time today to tackle that question, but if you have it, look up John Piper on it. The answer is simply this, that God is not a megalomaniac because he deserves all of that praise because he made it all. And also God understands that our greatest good is in worshiping the greatest God. We are most satisfied when we actually acknowledge who God is. Now I want to trace the story of his glory in the Bible. And God shows his glory in four ways as I see the Bible. This is obviously going to be a quick overview from Genesis to Revelation in six minutes. God shows his glory in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My wife is a gifted creator. She is a seamstress. She makes beautiful pillows for the home. And if you were to see one of the pillows she has made, what's the first thing that you would ask? How much does it cost? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what you would wonder is, who made that? It's so beautiful. It's something that I want. It's something I'm attracted to. And that's what God's creation does. When we see the creation, it points to the person who created it. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. 
That's why Paul said in Romans 1 that everybody on the face of the earth at least knows the eternal power and the divine being of God simply by looking at what he has made. God gets glory in his creation. This is good, but God wanted more. This is inanimate praise. God made man then with a free will to get even greater praise for himself. And this is the second way God gets glory, through his people. God chose in Genesis 12 from all the peoples on the face of the earth a man and his descendants to receive his special blessings. And why did God do that? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 43, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And the people of God from the Old Testament now in the New Testament become the church. And Paul says the same thing about the church. Ephesians 2.21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. You see, God wanted a people who, because they had seen his worth and his grace, would voluntarily, volitionally give him their praise. And this would bring him more glory. That's why he redeemed us through his Son so that we would worship him freely. God didn't just want mechanistic praise. God could have made a billion bots, for instance, just to go around saying, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, but that wouldn't do anything to the heart of God. God wants human volitional praise. And to get that, he woos us to himself. He doesn't force us, because you can't force a human being to love. My granddaughter has taught me this. She's almost two years old, and I don't know if it's all girls, but she's a coy one. She, she knows how to play hard to get. Now, she'll go to Grandma any day of the week. She'll go to her aunts, but when Grandpa walks in the room, she kind of does one of these at me. And so the last, really, year, I've been really, you know, <laughs> trying to figure this out. And so I've, I've given her fisties once in a while, given her a cookie, you know, try to be real nice and sweet, and she just isn't, isn't coming around. Except two weeks ago, you know what she did? She was at our house, and she was with Marty, and Marty said, you want Grandpa to read you a book? And she looked at me and sized me up, and then she did something I'll, I will literally never forget. She went over to the, the books, and she got one, and she came to me and, and backed up to me, and then she scooted up on my lap. And that's a sweet story, it really is. <laughs> but it's also a deep story, because I think it explains the problem of evil in the world, which we don't have time to tackle today. But here's the point. Why did that delight me so much? Because it was a volitional choice on her part to say, you are worthy of my time and of my affections and of my closeness and of my relationship. And that's what God seeks from his people so that he gets more glory. Thirdly, God shows his glory in his son. This is what Christmas was all about, the incarnation. You say you want to see God's glory. My friend, you do not want to see God's glory because you couldn't see it in that body, as John Owen said, and live. If you saw his glory, you would be zapped like a mosquito in a zapper, and that would literally be what would happen. God cannot reveal his full glory. In fact, he says in John 1, no man has ever seen my glory or can see it. So how are we going to get to know him if in these bodies we would be burned alive if we saw a fraction of his glory? Well, God figured that out. And so what he did is he had the word become flesh, Jesus. 
his son, and dwelt among us. And when we saw Jesus, what did we see? We saw the glory of the Father. And what did we see in Jesus? We saw grace and truth. We saw the message from God saying, I love you and I'm giving you my son to redeem you, to buy you back from your sins so that you can be my people and praise me through the sacrifice of my son Jesus. That's what the transfiguration was all about. Jesus took John, Peter, and James with him up on top of a mountain and just for a moment the curtains parted on the glory of Jesus and his face shone as bright as the sun and his clothes turned white as snow. And Luke tells us that the apostles saw the glory of Jesus and they wrote about it so that we can believe it. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's glory with skin on, somebody that we can feel and touch and understand and relate to. And this is why our first core value as a church is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. As God come in the flesh, he shows us what God is like and we love that message of grace, do we not? That's why we wanna follow Jesus. And then fourthly, God shows his glory in his culmination, his culmination of history. And I call it his culmination because history is his story. God is orchestrating all the events of the world, including what's happening in Washington, D.C. and Tehran and all around the world. He's orchestrating all the events of your life and mine to this one end that he might receive more glory. And in the book of Revelation, history comes to a, a crashing crescendo. And the theme of Revelation is the glory of God celebrated by, by creatures and Elders and angels and throngs of myriads of people all proclaiming the glory of God and so many verses we could read. Let me just read Revelation 19. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. This is how history is going to end. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then in Revelation 21 the new heavens and the new earth come down and God begins to dwell with his people and the Bible ends with this picture with God's people in an eternal love embrace with their God and their Savior, worshiping him with his name on their foreheads. God is getting glory for himself throughout all of history and then throughout all of eternity. Well, that's very nice, very theoretical. It's really very airy-fairy, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of out there. It's hard to really understand because that's not where we live. And so what, what I thought we'd do is we'd parachute down now into the real world for a few moments. Can we do that? And I want to tell you a story from the book of Exodus. If you need your expository preaching fixed, then this might help with that. But, but here's a story that, that isn't up on the stage with all this fluff and snow and everything. This is a story down in the grit and the grind of life where we live. And it's the story of the Exodus. You know the story well. The, the, the signature redemptive act of God in the Old Testament, which then became a picture of the redemptive act of God through Jesus Christ. And you know the story. God had chosen Abraham and promised to bless him, and yet they ran out of food in their country, and so they had to go to Egypt. And there they lived 400 years, and they became slaves, and they were suffering under the persecution of the Egyptians. And so they called out to God for deliverance, and God sent them a deliverer, Moses. And then 
Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let us go out into the desert to worship our God. Pharaoh laughs at him, says, who are you? Who, are, who is your God? And so you know what God does next? He brings plagues on them. And after five plagues, this is what God says to Pharaoh. He says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. You see, God is at work. He has a plan coming together, but it involves the suffering of his people for generations. Well, then you know what happens next. He gives five more plagues, and after the plague of the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally says, yes, please get out of here, leave. And so the people pack everything up quickly, and they head out rejoicing. They're ready to, to, to get to the promised land and enjoy the new life God has given them. And then suddenly God gives them a detour. It's unbelievable what happens in Exodus 14. God says in verse 2, turn around, go back. But he explains why he is doing that. Exodus 14, verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So Pharaoh hears that the people are wandering around. He thinks they're lost. He thinks how stupid he was to let them go. So he gets his 600 best chariots and all of his army and races out into the desert, and the people see him coming, and they panic. They've got the sea on one side and this vicious Egyptian army on the other side and they don't know what to do and they cry out to God, what are you doing to us? It would be better if we had died in Egypt. And God says, relax, I've got this. All you need to do is stand still because I'm, I'm doing something. And what am I doing? He tells them twice again in chapter 14, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. And what happens next? God puts a cloud between his people and the Egyptian army. He opens the way in the Red Sea. The people walk, all two million of them with their kids and their cattle, walk across on dry ground. As God lifts the cloud, Pharaoh sees them escaping the other end. He says, I'm going to go get them now. And so he and his whole army jump into the, the chasm between the, the walls of water. And then right before the other end, you know what God does. He just clicks his finger. His plan is now coming together. And the water crashes in on them, and Pharaoh and his entire army is drowned. I wonder if that's the story of your life, God doing confusing things. You're wondering, what's going on? Does God know what's happening? My friends, God is a warrior. He knows what he's doing. And his desire is that he would get more glory from your life, which he did in this instance, because the very next chapter, Exodus 15, is a long song of praise by the people of Israel for their redeeming God. Praise that reached to the ends of the earth. God has one interest, and that is his glory. Well, how do we fit into this story? As we close, let me suggest three ways, because 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you need a verse for the year, that would be a great one. And let me help you understand maybe how to do that. How can we make the glory of God the central feature of our lives? First, I would suggest by our worship. As we read about in Psalm 96, 8, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. That's why we gather every Sunday. That's why we gaze on his glory and worship him. But once a week is not enough, my friends, for you to taste the glory of God. This needs to be a daily experience. 
you in your closet can go and through his word and by his spirit you can gaze on the glory of God and his son Jesus. And you can offer your worship and praise to him. Secondly, by our lives. Did you notice that right after chapter 11 of Romans comes these words in chapter 12? And what Paul has done is he's given kind of a history of mankind. He's given the history of sin and salvation. And he says all of this is, is through God and from him and for him. And therefore, because of that, because of his mercies to you, you need to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And this is what? This is our spiritual worship. Not just our words, but our lives. We spent the month of December giving thanks to God, and that's, that's great, that's an important thing to do, but, but maybe now we can take the next step after giving thanks, and that would be living thanks. And how do we live thanks to God as we live holy lives? You see, we take the name Christ on us, but if we have sin dirtying our lives, we sully the name of God and we destroy His glory. Holiness glorifies Him because it says He is so great he is so worthy. He's way much better than any sin I could possibly do. And it lets us be little images of Jesus in the world which give him more glory. My friends, this is what the church is for. The church is to help us grow in Christ's likeness. And that's why you need to be here every week to worship and to hear the word and to fellowship with God's people. You see, I don't think I can ever reflect God's glory very well. I'm just a weak, sinful, straying human being. Well, Here's the answer for you from 2 Corinthians 3. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. How do we become transformed to look like Jesus? We have to look at Jesus first. And we become transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. It's not going to happen overnight, but it will happen in stages as we reflect more and more upon the glory of the Lord. And then thirdly and finally by our actions. You see, God chose a people for himself. And then he sent a savior. And this is what he said about Jesus. Jesus came as the Messiah for the Jews. But Isaiah tells us that if that's all he did, that would be too small a thing. Why did Jesus come? To bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. Because he is such a great and glorious savior that if only one ethnicity praised him, that would be too small a thing. And do you realize that you could live a, a perfect holy life, you could every day offer your worship and praise to God, and it would be you and God in this perfect relationship, and that would be wonderful, but that would not be enough. Why? Because you're one person, and there are 7.7 .7 billion people in the world. And God wants our lives and our words to tell them about him. He says, you are the light of the world, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and then do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. He uses us to be a picture of God and of his Son to the world. My friends, we need to do that in our neighborhoods, but not just here. We need to do that among all the nations of the world. Because we don't want to have too small a view of God's glory. You see, global outreach is not just this nice little thing that Nate likes to do so that he can fly on airplanes 
and come back and wear funny clothes at Reach. No, global outreach is the story of God's glory going global. It's the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and it's understanding that the way God does that is through us, his people. Piper says, God is pursuing with omnipotent passion a worldwide purpose of gathering joyful worshipers for himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He has an inexhaustible enthusiasm for the supremacy of his name among all nations. Therefore, let us bring our affections into line with his. My friends, that's what we mean by this is for that. We worship God here and we become like Christ here because that's valuable, but it's not an end in itself. This is all so that this might go there to Brookside, around our country, and to the ends of the earth. This is for that. And so I need to ask you this morning, how far are you reflecting the glory of God? Has it gone global in your life? I want to thank you for the Christmas offering. Wow, what a generous response. God's glory is going to increase in West Africa because of building and expanding a hospital there. But maybe 2020 is the year for you to take another step in God's glory going global through your life. And that would be to take a vision trip, to actually get on an airplane yourself with me or another of our 12 team leaders that we have on our trips this year. Get out of your little circles and your bubbles here and, and take your knowledge of the glory of God to some peoples that yet don't know about him. The trips are all listed online. We're going to have a call-out meeting later this month where you can come and learn more about it. But 2020 would be a great year for you to let God's glory go global through your life to make this truly for that. Well, as we close, let me just ask you this. Have you seen God's glory? You'll never be the same. Has it ignited in you a desire for more? And then are you reflecting God's glory? By the way you live, is your life an acceptable worship to God? And then finally, are you reflecting him to others around you and others around the world? Because this is the story of the Bible. It's the story of his glory through us. Will you pray with me? Let me just give you a moment to pray about those questions. First of all, have you seen his glory? You may have come today not a believer, but unhappy, not at peace. My friend, the only answer for you is to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. As a believer, are you seeing his glory daily? Are you savoring it? Are you letting it change you from the inside? And then, what are things that are in your life that are not a credit to his name? Do you confess those? Be rid of them. Do you become more like Jesus and show his glory to the world around you? And then finally, would you just open yourself to whatever God might have you do this year globally? might be a big step of faith for some of you, but it might be what he has to show you that his glory is great. He's worthy of the praise of every single nation on earth.
Father, we thank you for who you are. You are a great and glorious God. We give you our worship. We're amazed that we can even speak to you and live. It's only because of your Son who has covered our sins by his blood and brought us into the most holy place that we can do that. We give you our thanks with our words and now this week with our lives and this year with however you would lead each one of us so that your great glory might be made known here and among the nations of the world. To the praise of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.